The following podcast contains explicit language. It also contains implicit language, so, you know. Welcome to Little City Big Sound. I'm your host, David Pender Lofgren. If you're a regular listener to this show, you may have noticed that since episode six or so, I've been ending the credits by saying, <clears throat> Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the BellPod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. And you may have asked yourself, what does that mean? Well, I'm excited to announce that we are working on building a couple of new shows that will join the BellPod Network over the next few months. The purpose of this network is to create a community of podcasts made by and for the people of Whatcom County. These podcasts will focus on local issues, highlight local people and businesses, and hopefully contribute to the fabric of our community by celebrating the things that make the city of subdued excitement such a special place to live. So keep your eyes and ears open this summer as we roll out these new programs. As soon as we're ready to release the first episodes, I'll be sure to let you know about it here in the Little City Big Sound feed and via our email list. Speaking of which, have you signed up for our mailing list yet? Head on over to littlecitybigsound.com and fill out the form at the bottom of the page to stay up to date on all of the great podcast programming we've got in store for you. Okay, now on with the show. This month's guest has been a perennial favorite at the Subdued String Band Jamboree since she took the stage in 2013 with her band The Reverie Machine. Awed by the sense of community she found here, Meg Yates decided to leave her home state of Maine and move to Bellingham in 2015 with her then-husband and bass player for the band, Mordecai Rosenblatt. Over the next several years, The Reverie Machine performed regularly around the Pacific Northwest, sometimes as a duo, sometimes bringing other local musicians into the fold, including, in full disclosure, the host of this program. In addition to being a prolific songwriter and musician, Meg Yates is a visual artist, an educator, a self-described art monk, and an interspiritual minister. Her evocative work focuses as much, if not more, on process than it does on product. Meg encourages audiences to participate in the creative endeavor and cultivates a sense of shared catharsis as a result. The past year has been full of challenge and change for the Reverie Machine. Meg has been dealing with health issues and she and Mordecai have recently divorced, but true to her resilient spirit, she's about to release a new album entitled The Other Side, her first solo album in over 10 years, with songs that explore moving through the difficulties of life and the process of reaching the other side. Here's our conversation. Meg Yates, welcome. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I want to talk uh, a lot about your music, but before we get into that, I want to talk about your paintings. <laughs> In December of 2015, you decided to create a painting each day, every day, as a creative practice. Yes. As of this recording, you've painted... 1,263 individual pieces. Um, first, can you talk about why you decided <laughs> to do this? <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? Um, my love of painting started when I was 12. This woman who lived in the town that I was living in with my dad saw that I had artistic talent. And she brought me to her, her attic where she had a lifelong studio and gave me 
everything. She just set me up with her entire life's collection of art supplies. <laughs> so I started painting like weird conjoined people. <laughs> and I've always been curious about monastic practices. And before my father passed, when I was 18, I was really seriously considering going in a more ascetic direction and kind of pivoted and turned towards the world and started reading about, I guess, I guess mystic personalities that were were converting their inner world into outer expression and not particularly religious. So that was a good reason to not go into a monastic lifestyle. But I'm really drawn to that clarity of purpose and practice. And Wait, so you were thinking about becoming a monk, a nun, a nun. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was real for me. And I was in conflict about it because. It, I wasn't drawn to it sort of only as an idea. I was, I'm genuinely built towards a lot of silence and stillness. But there were aspects that I would, you know, obviously have to be accommodating to or completely immersed in that were not very honest of me. So it's a, it's a good thing but that I'm not there, right? But I've always been fascinated with, with people who are dedicating themselves to a very austere path. And also, I'm a really, like, juicy, sensual lady who wants to be in the world. So figuring out how to pair both um, very real parts of me and be authentic w- took me a lot of years to figure out what my daily practice was, was going to be, daily meditation practice, and then figuring out how to make meditation into a, a living thing that's not just about sitting on a, on a cushion. <laughs> sort of separate. And again, bringing it more into the world. And I moved to Rhode Island for a couple of years to break up with my long-term boyfriend. But I just kind of like created a, a monastic container for myself for two years and continually asked myself, what do I really want here? Like, what is what is my life about? What do I really want to make here? And so I started variations on daily practice then, and that so was you like just, 12 years ago. So you decided... Uh, that was the moment when you said, like, I'm thinking about some sort of monastic lifestyle. You move to Rhode Island and then you go, I want I want some aspects of that, but you also... That's when I began playing with, like, removing things, beginning to, like, be in purgation, basically, like, stripping things away and figuring out what I wanted to add from there. And so from there I began some form of daily art practice, but it was very minute. It was like little sketches or a poem. And then went through a series of um, health challenges when, when and then moved here to Bellingham almost five years ago. And again, was curious in a more deepened way around daily practice. And then finally I got the guts to ask this woman um, – She's in the UK, and she was doing a 30 Faces in 30 Days challenge, and was just watching her evolution and um, didn't know that that was a thing. I kind of just thought it was a hashtag or something, but wrote her a little DM and was like, can I do that too? (laughs) She's like, yeah, this is like a thing that people are doing. I'm like, oh, cool. And I did, and I did 30 Faces in 30 Days, and when I got to the end of the 30 days, it was the thing that I had been looking for. It was... And I somehow set myself – I actually I – I reflect on this often. I'm like I somehow set myself up really well because it's a six-by-eight piece of paper, which is totally doable. You know, I can get 15 packs of this paper for $3 from dickblick.com and like it's just so approachable. And I feel confident about 
doing that every day and engaging. And it's okay if it sucks. Like it's not really about it being a good piece of art because it's really about the process and the practice. But gosh, I'm so grateful I have that because with everything that's been happening in the last handful of years, I just have this glimpse into very subtle things that are moving through me, whether they're colors or textures or stories or dreams or other people's dreams or other people's stories that are coming through that there's a little bit of an archive for that and a way to explore and play and breathe and meditate, apply that meditation state, you know, and also my my love of the science of breath and exploring new techniques and new process that I maybe wouldn't try if I were only working on canvas because that's expensive and mm-hmm. I used to work on canvases for like six months. I was just so precious about them and so neurotic about them. And I didn't even like them when they were done. And that felt terrible, you know. What I'm appreciating is that the daily practice has opened up a lot more fluidity and expression and immediacy and um, way blown past fears and trying new processes, collage and charcoal and whatever. It's just a six by eight piece of paper. doesn't really care what I do to it. Can you talk about like what you've learned about the creative process or your creative process just by having this regular thing? Um, I've learned how to destroy things, to accept my that, that the creative process includes as much destruction as it does creation. Not only are you disturbing and destroying the silence of a, of a blank piece of paper um, and allowing yourself to be seen, which is like a whole practice in and of itself – but sometimes you work on something for hours and it sucks <laughs> so hard. Sometimes you invest yourself and you're like really feeling like you're going in a direction, but it's also a frustrating direction that you can't stand, that I can't stand. And I remember the first time this happened, I think it was about halfway through my first year, I was working on this woman and um, oh. I I had already put so much time into her and there was just something so wrong. Like there was something tight about her and like there was something completely void in her face and like, oh, I was just so disturbed. But, but part of the process was not like crumpling up the paper and, and completely giving up. And so I was like, well, all right, what am I, what do I do? And I poured a bunch of black paint over the painting and was planning on completely starting a new painting, but didn't want the thickness of the black paint over it. So I I took a credit card and scraped it and was like, oh, there it is. That's what that's supposed to be. She had streaks moving all through her. Um, Like some of the black was, was retained and some of it, and and all the work that I had done for hours and hours was still there, but it was like mucked and mired. And I was like, this is honest. This, this is where it, that's at. This may not be a beautiful painting, but, but allowing myself to work on something and to move through it and to not tear it up, to not destroy it in a way that was about denying the work that I had done, but actually allowing the work that I had done to show through, but also showing the transformation and the willingness to surrender entirely to the process and be like, I have no idea how the fuck this is going to turn out, but here it is. And I, then I like put whatever, like cheek dots on her or something and like scrubbed out her face a little bit so that she had some semblance of personality, you know, in addition to the black lines that were moving through her. And it was done in like 10 minutes after that, you know, like it wasn't like all the work that I had done was, was senseless. It, mm. it just wasn't where it was landing. 
we sometimes we feel like, oh, I, I, I invested all of this time. I did all of this work for this and it failed or it didn't turn out the way I wanted to. But we just don't really necessarily have any idea how something is going to show through or shimmer on the other side of another part of the process if we can just allow ourselves to continue with the process. I really appreciate that you don't um, qualify the paintings. You don't talk about, like your posts are the number of the, it's like the title of the painting. You'll come up with a title, you know, yeah. so you add a little bit of a pointer, another layer or a, a pointer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's no, it's not like, well, today was really hard. There's no like journal entry about your yeah. artistic process. It's just there. Though, if you look really closely in the hashtags, sometimes I'll say, oh, traveling today or, oh, this didn't turn out the way I anticipated. <laughs> there, there are little hints, but in a way, in a way, the work that I do, part of the monastic thing is um, is is recognizing where I'm genuinely of service. And so at some point, the painting is no, not really mine anymore. And so then it becomes, um, then the art becomes about, it moves into the stage of witness, right? So it's cool to sit in a room and do a thing by yourself and work on something. But eventually there's witness. And what's sweet about this pra- practice is that um, the witness then brings the stories more from from away from it being exclusively a journal entry for me, though, you know, albeit I've gone through really hard things in the last couple of years and the paintings showed that, but they were still universal. They still moved into that place where other people could enter into the dialogue and have their own story and their own interaction with it. Yeah, for, you know, maybe slightly longer than the 15 seconds that the average person looks at a piece of art in a museum. <laughs> Do you feel like the painting practice has informed your musical practice as well? Definitely. Well, what I would say actually is that all I don't really care what I do. I don't really I don't really care what the expression is. I feel like all of the art forms it's not really about art for me, I guess. It's more about unity. It's more about unity from inside to outside but then also connection between people and myself than it is about art, which sounds silly, but it's true for me. <laughs> I think about it a lot because there are people who are artists who are like really all about beauty and I don't give a crap. I don't really care about beauty. I'm not really here for beauty. I don't really, it's, I'm not necessarily here to make the world a more beautiful place. <laughs> I feel like what I'm here to do is translate. I'm here to translate. So it, it, whether it's music or if it's art or if it's dance or movement or yoga or a conversation, I feel like the whole point for me is about translation. I want to talk a bunch about your music. Um, you have a new album entitled The Other Side. I do. And that'll be released uh, around the same time as this podcast, I think, in June, right? Yeah. Do you have a release date yet? No, not officially. I'm working on that, but... Details to come. Details to be determined. Before we get too much into the music stuff, you brought your guitar with you today. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you could play a song for us. Or maybe you could, like... Tell us a little bit about a song and then play sure. it for us. Um, I think I'll sing an acapella, actually, from from the new album, The Other Side. This song I'm about to sing is called Burning Mountain. And it's kind of about, it's about a few things. It's about this mystic reality of initiation, essentially, uh, like in an in interior sense that things are you're insecure in a whole series of changes. And in fact, like 
there's an, an, an interior sense of heat, <laughs> like things are burning away or clarifying, simplifying. And I started having a series of dreams, which I feel a little vulnerable talking about. I don't always talk about this, but I had a series of dreams that I was calling temple dreams and had them for about seven years. And it was an, I was aware that there was some something in me radically changing and wasn't sure what it was going to look like practically, how I was going to live in, in, into it, into the changes. And every time I had one of these dreams, things would sort of materially shift in some way. I, what I didn't know ultimately is that, because it's kind of, a, it's also about ordinary living, <laughs> you know, having a family and holding hands with somebody and continuing to walk together. What I didn't know is that part of the transition for me was that there was some walking away in terms of my personal experience of relationship, but but also walking in more towards the ordinary and allowing um, allowing whatever is in the in- inner life to be something that you exist with in your daily, in the, in the very ordinary, very mundane moments, to recognize to recognize the river, to recognize the waters that are passing by. Yeah, to recognize the the spiritual practice, if you will, of holding hands, of really going through life with somebody. And so the first the first time I sing it through, I'm singing it through solo, and there's no rhythm. And then there's the burning mountain, the chaos, like the breakdown, basically. And then it's intended that the second time it's sung through that there are more voices, of which case today and, and on the album, it's just me. But even even having this this, ri- this clapping rhythm, which maybe you'll clap with me, that'd be cool, sig- signifies like that rhythm of daily life, like moving through the mundane with with your inner life intact, like being intact as a whole human being and and walking together with somebody. That's what the song's about. <laughs> Will you see me through, see me through, climb a mountain if you have to, pay the toll booth keeper, silver and gold, keep your hearth burning, we'll never grow cold. Will you see me through, see me through, or troubled waters, skies of blue, faith like a rock, or a pebble, a stone, let's build a family, let's build a home, let's build a family. Let's walk the path, I'll hold your hand, we'll never look back, I'll hold your hand, we'll never look Burning, burning, mountain crumbling, burning, crumbling, mountain crumbling, burning, crumbling, burning, burning, mountain, mountain down, mountain down. Mountain down. Will you see me through? See me through. Climb a mountain if you have to. Pay the toll booth keeper. 
all your silver and gold. Keep your hearth burning. We'll never grow cold. Will you see me through? See me through or troubled waters. Skies are blue. Faith like a rock or a pebble of stone. Let's build a family. Let's build a home. Let's build a family. Let's walk the path. I'll hold your hand. We'll never look back. I'll hold. I'll hold your hand. We'll never look back. Wow. <laughs> Did that song mean different things to you when you wrote it than it does now? In a way, yes. Um, when I wrote it, I thought I was happily married. Um, I understood that there were some things coming up in my relationship that had always been in my relationship, but I, I thought we would make it through. And I guess we did, but not the way that I anticipated. So, yeah. This life is very much about process and availing to the process. And I feel like, yeah, all I can do is honestly reflect and translate what I see, but our perceptions change as as we as we live see more i see more now i feel like so much of the music that you write is i mean it can be really vulnerable and really deeply personal like you're right a, a lot of your songs are writing sort of of your experience and i wonder if if that experience of sort of the meaning of a song especially when at the time that you're writing, it is so personal to that moment. Mm -hmm. um, what that feels like, I mean, now there are songs that you've written, you know, 10 years ago that were about very personal moments in your life. Does that always happen? Is it always like you write from this seed and then all of a sudden you realize it has a totally different meaning? It's That's a really good question, David. Um, it's funny the way that I approach painting is very much how I approach songwriting and I've grown more conscious and um, I've, I've applied a little bit more of my intelligence to, to all of my creative processes but so much of it is like visceral kinesthetic for me and sometimes words that I write in songs unpack 10 years later Easy, for instance. There, there are lines in the song Easy 
from my second album. There, there are lines that when I sing that song now, I'm like, I, I knew something that I didn't know. I feel like I uncover a lot of that. It, it's interesting looking back at the last year of my life and looking at the daily paintings too, because there are things that the daily paintings were saying before they were actually said. Sometimes so precisely that when I look back at them even a few days later, I was like, whoa, I, I really, I didn't know why that title came through, why why this imagery came through, why the rose came through, why the stars came through, why this person was crying. I didn't know why there were certain lines in that song that's now on this album, Love Sick Blues, it used to be called something else. And I wrote that so long ago. I wrote that song 10 years ago. And it, it didn't make it on any of the other albums. It wasn't right. And with like two lines slightly edited, it is in its actual form. It's the song that it was meant to be, but I didn't know that. I couldn't have known that 10 years ago. So... Yeah, the evolution for me, that's um, that that process, availing, availing to the process and allowing the process to reflect back what is kind of sometimes more honest than what the protected self, the ego self, really wants to know or say. I want to stay present with that, with, you know, with my actual self. And so making things and not really knowing exactly why I'm making them, but then staying really present to them and really reflecting on them and allowing them to, you know, evolve me and push me while I'm making it and then while I perform it, because the performance is, again, that art aspect of reflection and witness. You know, there's, a, there's an exchange that happens there that is vital. And yeah, there, there are things that I, I've written so long ago that are so honest of this moment. They're still living. Could you sing uh, Lovesick Blues for us? Sure. <sighs> tried to follow you but you were flying by so fast past the lovers in the courtyard baker's dozen kisses so hard they couldn't last couldn't into something with a little more edge oh I'm tired of being so straight turn the radio on another love song I'll do whatever it takes whatever it takes to get to the other side Scene. I want something harder, but I mostly want to get to you. I'm really not a pretty girl, but I've got something they don't. And I won't give it to you just because you said you liked me. Liked me, you like me, 
My quirky little smile, my hips that drive you crazy. Go ahead and be crazy. I just want to get to the other side. Oh, I just want to get to the other side of these Fucking sick of the folk scene. I want something harder, and I wanted to be you. I say this party's over. Let's cross on over to the other side of these blues. Love sick blues. I say this party's over. Let's cross on over to the other side of these blues. Love sick blues. Love sick blues. Thank you. Yeah. Which of those lines re resonate differently with you <laughs> now? Hmm. Okay, we'll go there. Um, I feel like, and this isn't exclusively true, because it's just not. Because there are places where I have strength in my voice and 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 where I have even command, but. There's been a lot of me that has experienced anxiety in relationships and where I've been a bit like bewildered or docile. I tried to follow you, but you were flying by too fast. I feel like I feel like I've tried to follow other people. <laughs> and I never felt like I could catch up or keep up. And um, so I think when I wrote that, it was, you know, this was a long time ago. This was 10, maybe even 11 years ago that I wrote this. I can't quite remember. I've spent so much of my life trying to catch up to where people, where, where I perceive other people being. A lot of that comes from a very, I, I almost want to say harrowingly challenging childhood <laughs> where there was just not, there was just constant deficiency, you know, ranging from food deficiency to certainly affection. But yeah, now when I sing it, I'm like, 
I'm not as interested in following somebody. I want to walk beside somebody. So now when I sing the sassy line, I felt edgy when I wrote that line of like, I'm really not a pretty girl. You know, part of that was coming from wound because I, being in Maine, I don't look like a lot of people in Maine, you know? My dad was Colombian, like, broady, like, South American, boisterous, charismatic, huge personality dude. And my mom's Native American and a whole lot of other things, <laughs> um, including, I mean, both of my parents are, are, were incredible, but also challenging. And... Yeah, I just never really felt like I fit in. So like when I wrote that line, it it was like maybe a yearning to fit in. And now I'm kind of like, it's kind of like a weed out. Like, well, this is me, you know, like, I'm not going to be your pretty girl. I'm not I'm not really a docile girl anymore. So the the quality in which I'm approaching the song is different. It feels different now. Do you feel like you sing the lines differently too? Like they feel differently as they come out? Yeah, definitely. Like there's a visceral sense of my back kind of straightens and like I definitely legitimately feel sassy, like not in a nervous way when I when I get into that part of the song. <laughs> I just feel like, yeah, here it is. <laughs> you're either you're either we're walking together or this isn't happening. This episode is brought to you by Irish and Folk Mondays at Boundary Bay Brewery. Every Monday, Jan Peters hosts a thriving Irish music session, followed by a stunning acoustic concert series featuring local, regional, and nationally touring artists, performing a wide variety of folk and traditional music. Listeners and players alike can enjoy the great selection of food and drink available in the Boundary Bay Beer Garden, experience the age-old tradition of session playing with Bellingham's intergenerational Celtic music community, and revel in the world-class sounds of the feature performance. This month, Jan Song's Productions is proud to present the warm harmonies and ripping solos of the Collins Stackhouse Trio, the incredibly fine American fiddle tunes of Merryweather, the return of Irish fiddle master Dale Russ, and the songs and tunes of Bellingham's own Flattery. For showtimes and more, visit yonsongsproductions.com and follow Irish and Folk Mondays on Facebook. Irish and Folk Mondays at Boundary Bay Brewery, where the only boundaries are the beers. When I met you, you were playing in Portland, Maine in a band called The Reverie Machine, which eventually uh, you and your husband at the time, Mordecai, like you guys were in a band there. You moved out to Bellingham and continued with the band, kept the band name. Mm -hmm. But essentially it was the, the two of you moving to Bellingham. Yeah. You and I have known each other for a while now. Um, a long while. I met you on on the East Coast. I was on the road with Robert Blake. Mm -hmm. We played a show with you guys. It was about eight years ago. And once you moved out to Bellingham, you and Mordecai lived with us. Yep. Um, and I was playing in the band for a little while. Uh, so I've gotten to see, like, the guts of what the Reverie Machine has been. And it's always been, like, you've always been the songwriter. Like, mm -hmm. you're sort of the, you are the the um, the creative force behind the band. But as long as I've known the band, it's been a collaboration. Mm-hmm. What does it feel like to be 
on the other side, like mm. in this place where all of a sudden you're going, okay, I'm still writing the songs. It's just, this, I'm still the engine for this thing, mm-hmm. but it looks different. It probably feels different. It definitely looks different and it definitely feels different. Well, I started as a solo performer and so there's a, there's a return home in that. Hmm. And I also miss, I really love, I really love the intimacy of playing music with other people. It's a conversation for me. I think that's why I kind of spontaneously thrust people into a song without really, because I'm not like trying to, you know, surprise somebody or whatever, catch them off guard, but, but it will become apparent that a song needs something in addition, another, another voice, another conversation. Yeah. So, so I've always written solo. I I didn't particularly write with Mordecai. So that part hasn't really changed. But there's, yeah, it's not exactly that something's missing. It's just, it is, I don't know. It's a little, it's a little bit beyond me right now. It's still a little ineffable because I've only played a handful of shows as a, as a totally solo person. And There's a lot coming up about that. I've had some reflections from people saying very sweet things, which I am hesitant to say because, because it's certainly not about putting anyone who's worked with me down. But there's something really, I think there's something special about this little window where I'm standing on my own two feet and I feel so clearly like myself and I feel like myself when I'm singing and the stories and the songs that I have to share right now and the place that my voice is coming from, it's, um, it feels like it's in a good climate. Like it feels like matched by the world and what, what, what's needed. So I don't feel like I've been careened into some, you know, isolation, some desert scenario where I'm wanting something that it, that is miraging or not actually available. And also in addition to that, I look forward to whatever future collaborations come my way. Mm. In some ways it feels like, you know, for me, having seen the transition from where you were in Portland, Maine, just before you moved out here, when I met you, when I first heard you you play, the Reverie Machine was this, like, giant sound. (laughs) Drum set, electric Mm -hmm. bass, horns, uh, percussion... And the process has been a continuous stripping away of pieces. Yeah. And now it's you and your guitar. Yeah. And sometimes just your voice. Yeah. It feels it feels like it was headed here the whole time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's where I started. You know, maybe there'll be another wave where it gets big again. And I'm open to that. It's exciting, actually, to think about taking some of the new songs that are coming through because they're barreling through, like basically in the middle of the night. I'm sitting on my floor as a floor dweller, just like with my guitar, you know, and a candle. And songs are coming through pretty complete right now and refining a little bit, but they're they're coming out as they are. And the idea of messing around 
with other people and, and sussing out some of the sounds that are underneath because I can hear them all. I can hear what, what it what it wants, what it what it is already. It's just not being played, you know, audibly. But yeah, I look forward to other people, you know, not only he- hearing what I hear, but maybe hearing what they hear too. And that was always one of my favorite things, working with you and working with any anyone is allowing space for your voice to shine through, allowing space for the things that you're fascinated by and influenced by. There's something in my music that holds space for that. I would actually say that might be true. I think this is why art and music and, and movement and my ministry and whatever it is that I that I do kind of the 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 underlying factor is this spaciousness. There's this like intimate space. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like the container that's made in the music that comes through me, there is space for other people's voices. And also it's enough as it is. Like all of them stand on their own. I feel like this about daily practice, painting practice too. Like the paintings, some of the paintings on their own stand on their own. But it's actually the brevity of the whole practice that actually makes it a thing, you know? I feel like the music does that too. Yeah, I mean, uh, for the people that you that play music with you and also for your audience, the music that you create resonates very, very strongly. It's funny, I have this memory of we played the Mission Folk Festival one year, and... If my memory serves me correctly, so Mordecai and I were walking away from the stage and I turned back to realize that you had been sort of trapped by like <laughs> this circle of women, some of them with tears usually. in their eyes. <laughs> I'm usually trapped in a circle of women. <laughs> but it, you know, it's, uh, I think it was the first time that I really sort of internalized like, oh, we get to walk away. Like we get to sort like we do this thing and we get to walk away from this because you're the one on stage that's like really totally opening yourself up to these people and they it resonates with your audience mm. very deeply. But that has to be exhausting to have people coming up to you constantly wanting to share their experience and tell you what your art means to them. Have you had to develop skills to like create boundaries to to understand how to be both like gracious and protect yourself yes <laughs> i don't mean to say that i'm always trapped by a circle of women trapped is not the right word but gosh you know when i was younger before i would sing i would like in a very urgent way I have to go to the bathroom and like my knees would clamber against each other I would sing, and then my immediate urge for so long, for like a number of years, was run away. <laughs> like, go. To, I needed to go to the green room or whatever, the bathroom, anywhere to just collect myself and gather myself because it's it's a, it's a really intimate thing to share yourself musically because you're telling your stories, but you're not only telling your stories. You're like, especially singing the way that I sing. It's like I'm I'm really expending an immense amount of energy to to share that and I'm also I'm albeit as a Gemini I'm very socially capable but I'm actually really introverted I I spend I never I was never a partier like I I spend a lot of time in silence alone and need that on a daily basis to recharge yeah 
<laughs> so being flooded or approached really quickly, which happens, it's like as soon as, soon as I'm done singing, there's, there's not really a pause. I've had to learn how to regulate my nervous system so that I was really present because there are gems that happen in those conversations. There are really important things, not only for somebody to say to me, but you know, um, like in terms of them, like in, being in their process, releasing or naming something that's come up for them. But I learned a lot from Thomas Deacon, actually, when I've learned a lot from Thomas Deacon, end sentence. <laughs> but one of the things that I learned from Thomas when we were on tour in Germany was about connection. Like he, 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 he would often talk about like making sure to not just look down. I was, I often, when I sing, I like look down or I close my eyes. It's a way of keeping my energy with me. And he sort of like, in his way, coached me to like actually look up and look around a room and connect. And watching a performer like Blake afterwards, and he just has such a capacity for showing up and, 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 um, meeting people, you know, in whatever way that they're in after a show. And I've, I've had to watch other performers to understand that aspect of performance. It's not, for me, it's not about performance. I'm not putting on a shtick. I don't, I don't particularly like filter myself on stage or afterwards <laughs> or on a podcast <laughs> or ever really, but to learn how to be in genuine connection I've had to watch other people and understand the importance of that, that it's really important to have follow through and it's really important to connect with people. And for me, it's not about selling records. It's actually because there's something that happened with a capital S and a capital H. Something happens. And I don't presume to know what that is. I mean, you're talking about the resonance of what happens when I share my music. I don't really know what, I don't know what it is exactly. I just feel like I never really set out to perform. I've had to learn how to perform. I'm figuring it out. I'm figuring out how to uh, manage my own energy before and after and meet people where they're at. And I have a heart for, of caring for, for what comes up for people. And so it's it's nourishing to me on some level, but it also does detract a little bit because it's just an it's just a big thing. I feel like I'm 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 a learner. I'm I'm it's in pra I'm in practice about it. I I don't have really any answers. It's just been it's been a process of understanding little thread by thread how to how to show up. Mm -hmm. It's not exhausting to me anymore though. I want to say that cuz you were, in your question you you named exhaustion and I'm not exhausted by it anymore cuz I figured out just enough tools like how I breathe as I'm coming off stage really impacts what my nervous system is doing. And um, I make sure to, you know, downregulate more into a parasympathetic place before seeing anybody. People are like vastly approaching me and I'm like, and downregulate. Because <laughs> if I'm in some kind of urgent state, it's it actually kind of feels like, it feels kind of threatening a little mm. bit. But I don't want to feel like I'm, you know, I don't want to project to somebody that I'm feeling threatened by their appreciation. That sucks. I don't, I don't want to be that person. But it's a really curious thing to figure out how to manage your energy as an introvert performer. It's, I mean, it's something that, like, it's it, somehow it's come up in almost all of the interviews I've done with performers. That that thing about like being on stage is so different than being in the audience after you've been on stage. Yeah. And there's there are a lot of expectations socially about 
what we do and how we behave in that space. Yeah. That, um, yeah, I mean, from the audience's perspective, when you're on stage, it feels like, oh, that person is incredibly confident being in a room full of people. Right. Because they're doing that thing. And it's like, well, no, that's a very different space. It is a very different space. When you're on stage, there are bright lights that are kind of blinding you from really seeing anything. <laughs> it feels like a blown out living room. And then I'll, like, as soon, like between, so often then a performer is like, not often really transitioning from stage to audience. And that's the time where you'll notice, like, I do weirdo things in that time. Like, I am I begin to, like, I'll bend over and, like, turn my back away, and I, I'm, like, changing my breath, and I'm, I'm doing little practices in order to get myself prepared to meet people, to actually meet them and not just meet and greet them and schmooze them and sell them something, but, like, to actually meet them yeah, that that transition from stage to off stage, that's like maybe a minute or maybe three minutes if you like really give yourself that. And at a place like the honeymoon, there is no stage. You're kind of just in the room and then people are there at you yeah. <laughs> hovering, which is like I do that all the time. I forget. It's like I forget. You know, I was doing this um, with Devin the other day at one of his shows. I was like, why am I doing this? I know what this feels like, <laughs> but I'm doing it anyway. But there's this magic little window where if you can be, if we can be as performers conscious of how we're transitioning from performing to um, meeting or conversing, there's there's potency there. There's There are things we can do there that, you know, I, I hope I never – Stop getting nervous. I still get nervous before. I, I'm nervous right now. I mean, I'm like, I'm, I was nervous coming here today because I care about this. Like, this means a lot to me to be interviewed by you and to be, to be able to share the way that we get to share. It's like, it's a responsibility. I, you know, I almost said privilege, but I feel like it's actually a responsibility, um, especially in these times, these big changing times for anyone who has a voice to not only use their voice, but to create opportunity for other people to be inspired to use their voice and to share their voice together. I feel like I care so much about it. You know, I, I hope I never stop getting nervous before a show. Like I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to do that in order to get to the, to the heart of the matter. Um, and art gets to the heart of the matter. Meg, thank you so much for being here and for sharing so much of yourself with us. Mm, thank you, David. It's such a pleasure and really admire and appreciate the work that you're doing. Thanks again to Meg Yates for sharing her music and her stories with us. If you want to see the artwork from Meg's daily painting practice, you can follow her at Inner Life Creations on Instagram. That's inner underscore life underscore creations. Or you can visit her website, megan-yates.com, that's Megan with an H, where she's got all kinds of info on her ministry and the classes that she offers. If you want to listen to more of her music, you can find that at meganyatesandthereveriemachine.com, all one word. Who am I kidding? Just Google Meg Yates Bellingham or something like that, and all the stuff will pop up in the first page or two. Speaking of websites, just a quick reminder to please support the work that we are doing here by becoming a patron of Little City Big Sound. Thank you so much to the few people who are currently supporting the show. If you're not one of those people, you should just know that those folks are 
pretty cool. And all you have to do to become just as cool as they are is support the show for as little as $1 a month. That's, it's that easy. Just head to littlecitybigsound.com, show us your support, or send us a message. This episode's interview was recorded at Binary Studios. Thanks, Bob. Our ad music is courtesy of Mystery Chi. Thanks, Joel. Research help from the now-famous master of glass, Aaron Crosby. Thanks, Aaron. Our interviews are engineered and mixed by Andy Rick. Our theme music was written and performed by Andy Rick. And our logo was designed by Andy Rick. Thanks for everything, Andy. Little City Big Sound is a proud member of the BellPod Network, a collective of independent podcasts made right here in the city of subdued excitement. Next month, our guest will be the singular, the inimitable, the enigmatic, multi-talented, multi-instrumentalist, luthier, stage builder, DJ, and raconteur, Mr. Devin Champlin. I'll leave you with another track off of Meg's upcoming album, The Other Side, recorded live during our interview at Binary Studios. Here's At Your Feet. I lay my burden down at your feet Cry out for you in the middle of the night Your name drips honey off my tongue Once I feared you're coming, now I hang on your calling And the night can't help, it's falling like your gaze Upon my body Burden down at your feet. <laughs>
burden down at my feet. I lay my burden down at your feet. You lay your burden down at my feet. I lay my burden down. You lay your burden down.